Thank you, praise team. Well, we invite any children here between the ages of kindergarten and second grade to be dismissed to Children's Church. And there is no children's choir today. No children's choir today. So if you're in the children's choir, you can enjoy the sermon. Uh, The rest of you, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible and maybe you're a little unfamiliar with Luke, it's on page 1022 in one of those pew Bibles. Page 1022. And we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, page 1022. And today we're studying verses 1 to 10 as we continue our uh, survey of the life of Jesus and His teachings and His deeds. Let me just read the text that we're going to be studying. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum. And there a centurion's servant, whom His master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to Him, asking Him to come and heal His servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with Him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. How great is your faith? Would Jesus marvel at my faith in Him? The proper response to the person of Jesus Christ is faith. If we really grasp who Jesus is, and His person sort of saturates our consciousness in the sense that we understand all of His character and all of His power, the proper response to Jesus is faith. And yet so many times I think my faith uh, doesn't match what I say. I, I say that I'm a Christian. In fact, I say that I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's kind of the jargon that we evangelical Protestants tend to use. That's great. Okay, so if you know Jesus personally, then why don't I have greater faith? Do my prayers, and not just the uh, quantity of my prayers, but do the quality of my prayers bespeak faith in Jesus Christ? Or do I pray kind of mamby-pamby, wussy, whiny, weeny sort of (laughs) kind of prayers? Or do I pray confidently, knowing that He is the Lord and that He can Great faith is the proper response to the great person of Jesus Christ. And that's what this text is all about today. It's a very simple text, a very simple story. And it has two things to teach us. Number one, it wants to teach us 
who Jesus is. And then number two, it wants to call us to a great faith in the great person of Jesus Christ. So look at the story with me. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So he just finished the big sermon that we've been studying for the last month in chapter 6. And now he comes back to Capernaum, which was his home base of operations, as you know. If you think of the Sea of Galilee, up here in the upper left-hand corner is where Capernaum would be. It was a major uh, economic center there in the province of Galilee. And he comes back into town where he'd done miracles before. And that's when three new people enter the storyline. Verse 2, There was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly who was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So we have three new characters in the storyline. The first is the centurion. Uh, as you probably know, a centurion was an officer in the Roman legions. Uh, the, the various Roman legions were broken up into subgroups like most military units do. And uh, the centurion was a man in charge of a hundred men, uh, maybe fewer, a little fewer than that, but about a hundred people. And so in every legion you had 60 centurions. And the centurions really were the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, these guys are what made the Roman legions work. They were the guys who gave commands in battle. They were the ones who exercised discipline over the troops. They uh, gave orders. They trained. They drilled. They're the ones who made sure the weapons and the armor were ready. So, so the centurions were men of real power and influence within the army in the sense that they were the guys on the ground who made the Romans uh, work and made them the powerful uh, world-dominating force that they were. Uh, we know from world history that at this time, around the mid-20s A.D., there were four legions stationed in Syria. So there probably would have been about uh, 240, give or take, centurions in the area in which Jesus was. So not a lot of them. These are men of, of fairly uh, ample significance and prestige. Uh, we're told from history that you had to probably serve as a legionnaire for about 15 or 20 years before you'd work your way up to the rank of centurion. So when you think of centurion, you've got to think of a lifer. You've got to think of a battle-hardened vet who has lived his adult life in the military system and who thinks military, who thinks legion and army. That's who this guy is. He's tough. He's confident. He's a leader. He's a strong person. Otherwise, he would never have gotten to this position. The second character in the story that we're introduced to is the servant, or actually it's a slave. People had slaves in the Roman world. And this slave is sick and he's about to die. He's hanging on by his last string. The uh, doctors have come. The specialists have come. They can't fix him. He's about to pass away. And this centurion does not want this slave to die. He, he loves him. Now that may sound funny to us because when we hear the word slavery, we tend to read that word through the uh, lens of American history. And we think of slaves in America where uh, Africans were kidnapped from their homes and forced to become just chattel slaves, you know, working themselves to death on American plantations. And, and you have to understand that slavery in the Roman world was quite different from that. I mean, yeah, there were some slaves who, you know, were chained to the oars and they rode and rode until they died. But, but a lot of slaves had really great lives. Some of them were doctors. Some of them were philosophers and teachers. Some of them were uh, mayors of towns, as would be the equivalent today. So just being a slave in the Roman world wasn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, some people sold themselves into slavery to wealthy families as a way of getting ahead in the world so that they might then later buy themselves out and come out with a higher social status. 
So when you hear of this Roman centurion loving this slave, you've got to read it through the lens of the ancient world and understand that you know, a slave might become like a family member to you. This might have been, you know, in his heart, like one of his kids, he might have loved this slave so much. And now the slave is about to die and the centurion doesn't know what to do. And he's heard that Jesus is in town. And since Jesus had been there before in Capernaum, you know, maybe he'd seen Jesus do a miracle. Maybe the centurion was on duty one day and there was a big crowd of people and you know, he had to make sure there was order. So he waited in to see what was going on and, and he saw Jesus heal somebody. You know, so somehow he knows in his mind who Jesus is. He hears Jesus is in town and he sends a delegation of the elders of the Jews to go talk to him. So this guy's savvy. He knows how to work the political system. He knows that if you want to talk to Jesus the Jew, probably better to send the elders of the Jews. He, he, you know, this is a guy, he's living in um, a foreign country. He's an occupying power. He's got to know how to be politically savvy if he's going to have effectiveness in this area of the world. So he sends these Jews to him. And when they come, they plead with him. They say in verse 4, This man deserves to have you do this, Jesus, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. So this was a, obviously a wealthy centurion, and uh, he knew <laughs> that if you're going to be a foreign occupying power among the Jews, and you want to get along with them, you had better respect their religion. So at the very least, he was politically savvy, and he knew that he needed to respect the Jews. He even built a synagogue for them. Interestingly, archaeologists have found the site of Capernaum. They've dug up some of it, and they've actually found a synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, it's, it's a third century synagogue, so it's a little bit later than the story of the Bible. But, you know, the way they did things back then is often they'd build a building and then it would fall apart and they'd just build another one right on top of it. So it's possible that we even know the location of the synagogue that this guy uh, built. You know, it's, it's entirely possible, which is uh, pretty amazing. So, anyway, so far so good. And the story kind of is, sounds like a regular miracle story if you've read the Gospels. Here's a sick person, request for healing, Jesus goes to heal. And so, so far, it's the kind of story that we're used to reading if you've been here with us studying the Gospel of Luke. But the twist comes in the next sentence. This is where the story takes a right-hand bank and we kind of go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. It says, He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. What? <laughs> what do you mean, don't trouble yourself? In other words, the centurion is sending friends to say, Lord, don't come. Just stop where you are. You don't need to come. Stop your journey. What's that all about? Did the slave die? Is the centurion just being uh, sensitive to Jewish sensibilities and he didn't want Jesus to come into the house of a Roman Gentile and defile himself religiously? Is that why he's asking Jesus to just stop where he is? Why does he tell Jesus to stop? No, it's because... He understands the authority of Jesus' person and he's responding in faith. Because when you perceive the person of Christ and who he is, the proper response is faith and trust in him. And so he says, don't trouble yourself. Why? For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I recognize your authority. In fact, look how he starts the sentence. Lord, don't trouble yourself. That's a title of respect and reverence in the ancient world. If someone was above you on the social ladder, you would say, Lord, Curie, uh, Master, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come here. That's why I didn't even come to you myself. 
So in other words, he recognizes that Christ is great. Now, what did he know about Jesus? I don't know. I don't know if he really believed Jesus was the Son of God. He, I mean, you, can't, you, doesn't, you don't know. The text doesn't say. But he knew enough about him to know that he was great, that he was awesome. And so he treats him with respect. He says, you are the Lord. You don't even need to come here. I don't even deserve to have you here. Uh, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to come ask you to come here. That's why I didn't even come to you. And then he responds in faith. And I love this line, verse 7. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. That is the language of faith. Jesus, just say it, and it will be done. You don't need to come here. You don't need to bother. I just know, if you say it, wherever you are, it will happen. That is faith. So he sees the authority of Christ, the person of Christ, and he responds with the proper response, which is faith. And then notice that the faith is spelled out in verse 8. He says, verse 8, For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And this is so interesting, because it means that this Gentile centurion has almost like a, a prescient insight into who Jesus is. The simple centurion who you, know, you would think would just be at the outskirts of religion, somehow he gets it, he gets it. He says, oh, I get it, Jesus. I know how this works. It's just like in the Roman legions. I give an order, the guys go do it. Someone gives me an order, I go do it. It's real simple. I get it. It doesn't take rocket science or chariot science to figure this out. You know, I I, I understand how this works. Uh, You know, this guy's lived his whole life in a framework of orders. That's the military. The military works on orders. You get orders, you execute orders. You give orders, orders are executed. You don't execute orders, you're court-martialed. This is the structure of the military. And this guy, for the last, well, his whole adult life, has lived in the construct of orders. And so he's like, oh yeah, it's simple to understand. You know, I give some orders to some guy and he doesn't. I don't go follow my troops around and help them out and make sure they do it. I just know they're going to do it. And if someone gives me an order, I'm going to do it. I mean, this is, not, this is not hard to understand. So Jesus, I know it's the same way with you. If you just give an order... Your word will accomplish what it is you want to take place. So you don't have to come here. I don't have to see you. Just say the word out there wherever you are and somehow your word will be accomplished right here just like it is in the military. What an amazing statement of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's how Jesus assesses it as well. Look how Jesus responds in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. I was trying to think, a little uh, Bible trivia. You guys can figure this out over lunch. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that Jesus is amazed at somebody? I was, I was trying to, th- I couldn't think of it. There probably is one, just because I couldn't think of it. But maybe there's one, but I, I don't know. For Jesus to say to a man, a Gentile pagan Roman, I'm amazed at you. I'm amazed. And why is he amazed? He says, I tell, uh, turning to the crowd, Following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. He was amazed at the intensity and strength of the man's faith response to the person of Jesus Christ. Faith is the proper response to the person of Jesus. Now, why was his faith so amazing? What was it about his faith that blew Jesus away. Well, I think there's at least two things about his faith that really make it amazing. The first is that he believed that Jesus could do the miracle without even coming there. And that takes great faith. 
To be able to say, you know, Jesus, just don't even come. I don't need you to stand here. I don't need to touch you. I don't need you to touch the servant. I don't need to have the comfort of seeing you in my house. Just say the word. I I know it's going to be done. I mean, that takes great faith. Could you imagine if you have kids, or imagine if you did have kids, and one of your kids was sick, and went to the doctor, and the nurse walked in, and she goes, hmm, you know, I think we've seen this around. Let me draw some blood. They take some blood from your kid. You're sitting in the room there trying to keep the kid calm for half an hour. You know, that is kind of a nightmare. And then uh, then the nurse comes back with a little piece of paper. She says, Wilson, I talked to the doctor. Here's a little note from him. And he said, this is what your child has. And uh, if you take this medication, uh, your child will be fine. So you can go. You'd be like, am I going to see the doctor? No, you don't need to see the doctor. I mean, we've got a note right here from him. He, he saw the stuff and he's assessed it. And he says, just get this medication and you'll be fine. You'd be like, yeah, but I want to talk to the doctor. I, I, you know, shouldn't the doctor come in and look at the kid? No, no, he's, he has a medical degree. He's able to read the tests. You just, just trust him. Well, isn't he going to come in here and you know, shine a little light up my kid's nose or you know, you know, put the stethoscope on them or tap them on the, you know, something? I mean, just pretend like he's doing something at least. You know, where's the doctor? I want to see the doctor. Of course you would. And then they said, no, sorry, you're not going to see the doctor. You just have to trust him. You'd go home. You'd be on your phone. You would not believe what happened to me in my primary care physician day. Oh, I'm not going to him again. And, you know, just, you'd be in a lather about it, and so would I. You'd be wanting to change your primary care physician. But this guy has so much faith. He says, you know what, Doc, Jesus, you don't got to come here. You just say it. You could be on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't matter. You say it, thus it shall be. That is tremendous, almost supernatural faith. And in fact, all faith is supernatural. But not only is it tremendous because he didn't have to see Jesus, I think the other reason that this is amazing faith is that it's coming from a Gentile. In fact, he says that right here in this sentence. Jesus says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. What the Pharisees and the disciples don't get, this heathen gets. And that's truly astounding to Jesus. I mean, how could he get this? But somehow, he gets it. And he exercises faith. And that's one of the themes in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts is is the story of the good news of Jesus going beyond the social boundaries that you would expect. Even in Luke, we've already seen it, haven't we? The good news of Jesus is going to the tax collectors and it's going to the people outside of the camp. It's going to the the prostitutes and the, the people who that you'd expect wouldn't be touched by the Gospel. And it's even going to the Gentiles. And the whole book of Acts is about the Gospel going to the Gentiles. So here we have this little foretaste of the Kingdom of God spreading out that even the Gentile gets it. And it's, it's amazing. And Jesus is amazed at His faith. Do we have that kind of faith in Christ? Why is it that I look at the Gentiles' faith in this story, this Roman unbeliever, and I'm amazed at His faith too? And I look at my own heart and I say, where is that same kind of faith? Do I stand up confidently and in the name of Christ say, Jesus, just say the word and I know we're set? Or do I not whimper and whine and rub my hands and fret and cry and self-doubt and self-analyze instead of just standing confidently on who I know Jesus is? I mean, what did that centurion really know about Jesus? I mean, how much did he know? I don't know. But it couldn't have been that much. How much more do I know as a Christian about Jesus? I have the whole revelation of the New Testament. I have this complete 
uh, not exhaustive, but this full revelation of who Jesus is in the New Testament. I can read the stories the centurion couldn't read. I can read what the apostle saw. I can read what John saw in the Revelation. I know so much more about Jesus than the centurion, and yet I still doubt. What do we know about Jesus from the New Testament? We know that He's the Messiah. He's the Son of David. He's the King on David's throne. But He's not just the King on David's throne. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ has been appointed head over everything for the church. All things, Ephesians tells us, have been put under His feet. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the bright morning star. We know from Revelation that He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He was dead, but behold, He is alive forever and ever. And in His hand, He holds the keys to death and Hades. That Jesus Christ was crucified for me. That He was buried for us. That He was raised for us. That He sits at the Father's right hand and He intercedes for us. And from thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. And still I doubt. Where is my faith? Lord, increase my faith to doubt this Messiah that I know so much about. And still I pray these wimpy, whiny, wussy kind of prayers. Lord, I need a sign. I need You to show me. It's like, what more do you want? (laughs) Read your Bible, Jeremy. Read your Bible. But Lord, I I need them. It's like, oh. Why can't I stand like that centurion and say, just say the word? Whatever the problem is that you're facing in your personal life, family, money, illness, kids, whatever, you know, stand on the promise of who Jesus is and say, Lord Jesus, just say the word. You don't have to come out of the roof of my house. You don't have to give me some miraculous sign. Just say the word and it will be done. We're sitting here in this church and uh, God's blessing our church. It's filling up with people. We are really out of space. We, you know, that's one of the concerns we have here as a church. And we, we wring our hands. What are we going to do? We need a building. The town of Hingham is giving us a hard time to build a building here. Oh no, what's going to happen? What's happening to our church? <laughs> Not that I've ever acted that way myself. And it's like... Do you think Jesus is Lord over the town of Hingham, Jeremy, or not? Jesus, just say the word. Christ is blessing this church. It's not some thing that we're doing right in our church that other people aren't doing. It's just God's grace. So don't you think God has a total comprehensive plan for what He wants to do? Why do we get so worked up about this? Let's keep our focus where it needs to be. Or we here in Massachusetts, you know, we get so hung up over Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts is going down the drain morally. Look at the things that are being passed at the legislature. It's like, Jesus, just say the word and revival will slam this state like a nor'easter. Just say the word. And so we're going to stand confidently and just say, Jesus, when you are ready, it will happen and we will persevere in prayer and ask. Because He can do it. He can do whatever He wants. He is the Lord. And we need to pray in a way that glorifies His person. But, but I even want to think bigger than that because I think revival is too small potatoes to be talking about. 
Revival in America is too small potatoes. That, that's, that's peanuts. Let's talk big. Let's talk planet Earth. Let's talk the globe. This world in which we live, is He Lord over heaven and earth or not? Is the earth His footstool or not? And we need to stand confidently in the face of planet Earth and say, you are the Lord. You are the Lord. You know, we, we can get so freaked out about the world. I get freaked out about the world. I mean, this is a scary world in which we live today. We are playing a game of nuclear chicken with Iran and North Korea. There is a very real possibility that nuclear weapons can be created and put in the hands of a terrorist who will take a suitcase into a major city and set it off. And the city is gone. I mean, this is not sci-fi. This is the world in which we live. This is what our leaders are worried about happening. This is real. I mean, this is a terrifying prospect. This is stuff that they make you know, movies out of because it's so horrifying to think of. We live in a world where people with a kind of demonic determination are walking into public places with explosives underneath their coats. And they're blowing up innocent people in Afghanistan and Iraq and in Israel and other parts of the world. Like, this is just a crazy world we live in. There is genocide taking place today in the country of Sudan, in the Darfur region. People are being slaughtered because of race. In Africa, the greatest humanitarian crisis ever known in all of world history is taking place with AIDS. More people are dying from AIDS in Africa every day. It's like a tsunami of people dying every day in Africa. I mean, this world is so messed up and broken. So what are we going to do? And we look at it, and it's like, I'm just going to go to Blockbuster and rent a video because I can't do anything. <laughs> so I might as well entertain myself because what's the point? And we just want to give up. How can you even process all that? Yeah, we have the Gospel, though. The Gospel of Jesus is the answer. I believe it is the answer. I believe the solution in Iran is not ultimately diplomacy. It's to have the hearts of the people change from within and let freedom come, which always comes when Christianity and the Gospel enters a culture. And, and let the Gospel run rampant in Iran. That's the, the virus that will nuke that messed up system. Let the mullahs come to Christ and it will be changed. But, but then we look at that and say, okay, what about that spiritual prospect? Is there really any hope? You know, you can get discouraged about that too. Uh, there are 6.5 billion people on planet Earth today and missiologists who study world missions tell us that they estimate there are 2.5 billion people who live in what they call unreached people groups. And an unreached people group is kind of a technical missiological term, but it's a, it's a group of people who have a cohesive culture and language. And in those people, in, in their language, there is no viable witness for Christ in a church that, that could evangelize the country. So that's what an unreached people group is. And missiologists tell us that there are 2.5 billion people living in unreached people groups. Right now, there are that many people, not, not who don't believe in Jesus, but can't even hear about Him to make the choice. That's astounding. And it's even more disturbing because 80% of those people live in what's called the 1040 window. Have you heard of the 1040 window? It's, it's another kind of technical missiological term. It's, it's a geographical designation. Think of a map of planet Earth, all right? And imagine a big, long, skinny kind of rectangle. And on the left side of the rectangle, the left uh, wall is sort of right around where the edge of North Africa is. And you take the other end of the rectangle and you put it over on the edge of Southeast Asia. The bottom of the rectangle is 10 degrees north latitude. The top of the rectangle is 10 deg 40 degrees north latitude. 
So that's the rectangle. In other words, it's North Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. So it's where all of the terrorists are coming from. That's the scary part of the world. And that's where 80% of the people who can't even hear the name of Jesus are living, of the 2.5 billion. And we're like, how in the world are we going to make any difference there? It seems hopeless. It's like, why are we even trying? Why don't we as a church just have a big video night and just watch a movie together? Because how can we possibly make a difference in that part of the world where we feel so unequipped and so scared, frankly, and we worry that people hate us there just because we are American? How can we do this? We're going to have this missions conference this week. Uh, next Sunday is our missions conference. Saturday, as many of you know, is our missions banquet. Hope you're signed up for it. We're going to go down here to Hingham High School, which is right around the corner on Union Street. There's going to be several hundred of us getting together for a good old-fashioned Baptist potluck, which we do very well. We do potlucks good. We're going to have a mission speaker there. It's going to be a program for kids. and We have a great speaker coming. Paul Borthwick is just awesome, awesome mission speaker. He's going to blow you away. I hope you can come to that. It's going to be great. But you know... What are we thinking? Are we thinking that a couple hundred of us getting together and talking about missions is going to make any difference in this messed up world? Why do we even delude ourselves in such a way? And we're trying to raise money. You know, uh, Peter was up here earlier with the big uh, missions uh, pledge card thing. You know, we're trying to... We, we do this every year. We have our missions budget and we have people fill out these cards and then based on these cards we collect them and that's our missions budget. And our missions budget doesn't go to pay my salary or for the lights. It's for missionaries overseas. And so every year we raise some money. And this year we want to try to raise $320,000, which sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But then you step back and look at the big picture. You're like, $320,000? I mean, you can barely buy a house around here for that much money. You know what I'm saying? And, and we think that money is going to make any difference in the 1040 window? I mean, what are we thinking? The world would say, you are wasting your money. Take the money and go out and buy a surround sound system or a new car or something you really want to use because what's the point? Why do we have any ridiculous idea that we can make any difference on planet Earth? And I can only think of one reason. Because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and Lord of the nations. That's the only reason I can come up with that makes any sense. And if we believe that's who He is, then in faith we will stand against a seemingly impossible situation and we will step out in faith and just... Do it, believing that He is Lord. If He is not Lord, this is ridiculous and we're all just Don Quixote tilting at the windmills. But if He is Lord, then I'll tell you what, it is a sure bet. And so we go forth confidently believing in who He is and His authority over the nations. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. You guys familiar with the Great Commission? A little verse in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of the Great Commission. It's Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. A lot of Christians memorize this verse. It's Jesus' last words to the Gospels in the book of Matthew. So, you know, famous last words. And what does he say to the Gospels? He says uh, to the apostles, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that's Jesus' command to us. He, he told us, his last words, go to all the nations. And we memorize that. We say that's the Great Commission. We put Great Commission on our missions things. We put the verse there. But do you know the verse that comes right before the Great Commission? Do you memorize that verse? Do you know the verse that's right before it? Because people, that's the most important verse. 
The verse right before it, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The reason we have any hope of making disciples of all nations is because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ. And so we respond to the person of Christ in faith and we do what He told us to do. That's why we get together and have our cute little potlucks once a year and call the missions conference. Because we believe that God can use us to make a difference. That's why we give our money. That's why we don't think it's throwing money away. In fact, we believe that the money I give to missions is the most secure investment I can make with my resources. Stock market, can't trust it. It goes up, it goes down. Some people are good at it, some people aren't. Real estate can go up and down, but I know that Jesus is going to build His kingdom. And so in faith, I invest in something that I know is 100% certain to happen. So I'm happy to invest my resources. I say it's, you're a fool if you don't put your money into the kingdom of God. And, and what about my children? Why are we willing to let our children grow up and go off to parts of the world where I might not get to see them for years and where they're going to labor in a foreign country and maybe die an early death because of lack of good medical care? Why do we want my you know, children to even consider the possibility of being missionaries someday? Because I believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and that in His hands they are in better hands than in my hands and under my care in the safety of suburbia. I believe that Christ is Lord. On uh, February 19, 1812, Adoniram Judson and his wife of seven days, Anne, who's been married seven days, set sail from Salem, Massachusetts. Adoniram was a local boy. He grew up in, he was born in Malden. He uh, lived in Wenham and Braintree and eventually he grew up in Plymouth. And uh, he was going out, not on his honeymoon cruise, he was going out as missionary with his wife one of the very first missionaries to be sent from America. And they were going to India. And so they set sail for India. They got to India. The uh, British East India Company would not let them start a mission anywhere. They bopped around and they kept getting rejected. So finally they settled in Burma, right next door, which was not a, a good choice because uh, the, you know, England did not protect Burma. England had authority in India, but not Burma. So, but they went there anyway. And for the next six years, they labored away trying to learn Burmese, which is one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. During those six years, they buried a child. And during those first six years, they didn't see one person come to faith in Christ. Like, what are they thinking? <laughs> Finally, after six years, someone came to know Jesus and was baptized. And then two. And, and then they had this little nucleus of 18 Christians in their church. And then things went bad again. The uh, Anglo-Burmese War broke out and... Adoniram was accused of being a spy for England, so he was arrested and he was thrown in a jail. And you've got to think, 19th century Burmese jail. Right? It was, we're told, a box. It was 40 feet long and 30 feet wide, only 5 feet high, no ventilation, no windows, just the, the little cracks in the boards that were used to make it up. And over 100 half-naked people were crammed into this building sleeping in, you know, rotting food and their own filth, just crammed in this hot... Imagine, you know, imagine sitting in a box like that in the, the steaminess of Southeast Asia. And that's where they stayed. He was there for 21 months and sentenced to die. In fact, he had uh, iron shackles on his legs that were so heavy and so painful that they dug into his legs. And for the rest of his life, he had scars from those shackles. Uh, it was just such a profoundly horrible experience. And so there he is in this jail, seemingly wasting his life in a... Another fellow uh, Brit said to him, so, you know, in jail, you know, sort of sarcastically, Mr. Judson, 
So what do you think the prospects of the conversion of the Burmese are now? And Judson said, the prospects are as bright as the promises of God. He believed, not in his circumstances, but like that centurion, just say the word, Jesus, and Burma is yours. And by God's grace, he was released from prison. He was not executed. He went on to minister. People began to know Christ. And by the time of his death, not only had he translated the Bible into Burmese, but there were 63 churches. There were 126 missionaries and native pastors and their assistants who were working. And a survey taken sometime after his death of the Burmese population indicated that 210,000 people indicated they were Christians. It's like, how can that happen? How can, it, how can it take place? It's because two people were crazy enough to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I wonder what would happen if 700 people at South Shore Baptist Church were crazy enough to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Lord Jesus Christ, increase our faith in you. Lord, forgive us for believing in CNN more than the Bible. Forgive us, Jesus, for believing the newspaper pictures more than what You've told us in Holy Scripture. Lord, forgive us for believing in the world that we can see more than the risen Savior who we can't see with our physical eyes. Lord Jesus, You're a King of kings and Lord of lords, and we want You to use our lives to, to glorify You, Lord, and to honor You. Lord Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit on our church. Give us greater faith. We pray for this missions conference that you would expand our vision for the whole world. I pray, Lord, that you might even call some people from this church to go forth to scary places around the world to be your servants and your ministers in confidence, Lord. Lord, I even uh, offer up my own family. Lord, if you want us to go, Lord, we will go. Lord, speak the word. We are your servants. Lord Jesus, help us to raise $320,000 this year. Not that the dollar amount matters, Lord, but what matters, God, is that our hearts and our pocketbooks are engaged in what's important to you. So, Lord, move us to give generously. Lord, help us to be united as a church in a vision of the greatness of Jesus for the whole world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Hey, praise team, would you come and lead us?